the book of Revelation, chapter 6, and we're starting with verse 12, and it reads like this. I looked, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The title of my sermon today and next week is Who is Able to Stand? If you look at these verses, it starts off uh, with these calamities that occur, then all of a sudden it's the end of the world. This, the, the islands ruled away. The, uh, this, the, just everything just complodes upon itself. If I can keep this shut. And then it talks about all these different groups of people. Kings and commanders and great men and rich men, poor men, slaves. It includes everybody. But who are these people? That's the question. To our intent and to our impression, these are lost men. These are lost people. And why are they lost? Because they're not welcoming the coming of the second coming of Jesus. They're not welcoming that. They're, 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 they're in terror. And they're trying to hide their face from the Father and the Son. So we look at these people and say, well, they, they don't include us, Right? Right? Well, I didn't get much of a response, did we? Well, theoretically, we should say, they don't include us because when we see Jesus, we're going to be happy, right? Please tell me you're going to be happy. We're going to be excited. We're going to say, praise the Lord, it's over. He's here. Okay? But these men aren't doing that. They're not doing that. And then they ask this question, Who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand? So we're going to get out of Revelations now. And I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament because this question was asked by God's people a long time ago. We're going to go to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, it's the story of the children of Israel right after they entered into Canaan. Now, I don't want to say right after, maybe several years passed by, but we do know this, they were there long enough to start taking on the customs of the people around them that, they were kick, that God had kicked out, okay? They were there long enough to start uh, worshiping the gods of the people that were, that were removed. And if you're familiar with Deuteronomy... We had that in our Sabbath school lesson today. Deuteronomy 28 talks about 
the blessings and the curses that were guaranteed for God's people. And, and it went like this. If you're faithful, everything you do will work. If you are faithful, your family will, will grow and be prosperous. Anything that happens in your house will be positive. Your, your children will grow. Your, your, your business will grow. Your crops will grow. Of course, none of us, maybe some of, some of us are farmers. But in essence, Jesus, God was saying that everything that you involved yourself in would prosper. That was the guarantee. He said your enemies would come at you at one, one direction, and they'll leave in seven. But then he also gave curses. He said, if you're not faithful, and then he just undid everything he, he promised. Your family won't grow. You're, you won't be prosperous. That you won't be prosperous in the country. You won't be prosperous in your nation. Your enemies will chase you, and you will be devoured. So now we are here in 1 Samuel. And we're looking at the children of Israel. By the way, God's people. We always want to apply these things, by the way. We are God's people, right? That's us. But we have the same problem that God's people had then. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. So, they had begun to worship some of the gods that were kicked out. And they started to be attacked by the Philistines. And we're going to pick this up in chapter 4. And I'm just going to skip around because you don't, don't have a lot of time here. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphex. This is chapter 4. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army of the field. Well, this was kind of unusual because they had won every battle coming into Canaan. So listen to the next verse. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. What's wrong with this picture? See, God had already promised he would never leave them. They were faithful. Obviously, they were not faithful, so God had backed off. So now they want to find God, okay? They're, they're looking to find God, and where's, where's the God that they know of? Well, this is the God who sits in the sanctuary. So they said, okay, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the camp. All right, so what happened? So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly. What does it say? That the earth shook. You ever been to a, a game? Finals? Somebody hits the winning shot? Everybody stands up and roars, yeah! 
Well, at least I do. Well, this is how it was. When they, when they brought that Ark of the Covenant into the camp, this whole camp erupted. And it was so loud that the Philistines heard it. And you just kind of look at what they said. Um, I think we're down uh, verse 7. Verse 6. Now the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, and they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe unto us, who will deliver us from the hand of this mighty God? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So they said to themselves, Be strong, conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they are to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 30, foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hephni and Phinehas, died. Now, this seems like a total defeat of God's people. The Ark of the Covenant captured? How could, that, how could God allow that to happen? So we continue to read. The Philistines then took the Ark of the Covenant back to their town, put it in their temple. And they said the next morning, when they got up, they put the, they put the Ark of the Covenant next to their, guard, their god, Dagon. And so when they got up the next morning, Dagon had fallen on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, Jesus. So they said you know, they had to help their God up. Let me help you, God. They put him back up. And, and the next morning they came in. This time he had fallen face down, but his head was off and his hands were gone. And then shortly thereafter... That city began to be plagued by tumors, and, 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 and the Lord just, just really, I'm looking for the word, I want to say persecuted, but it was, that isn't the term. He really plagued that city. And so the people of that city said, get this thing out of here. And so they sent it to the next city of the Philistines, and the same thing happened. People developed tumors and boils. And they got sick. So they sent it to the next city. And the same thing happened. And so all the lords of the Philistines got together and they said, Look, look, we got to get rid of this God. He's killing us. And so what they did was, they said, Let's, let's, let's divide this, this plan. They got two cows who had just given birth to calves, who had never pulled a cart. And he yoked them up to a cart and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the cart. And they said to themselves, if these cows go up to the main road and head towards Israel, then all of this was from God. But if these cows go back to the barn to their young, barn to their young, then it was just a coincidence. And so they stood back, they let those cows go, and they just moo, moo, moo. Went up to the main road, 
hung a left, went right back to Israel. And they followed it. They followed the cart right up to the border. And they were saying, oh, God, I'm so glad we got rid of that thing. Well, God's people, they were working in, the, they were working in their fields. They looked up and there's the ark coming. And so they called the, the Levites. And, 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 and so the priests came and they, they, they sacrificed the cows and they built an altar. And, and it was just a great day of celebration. A great day of celebrating. The ark of the covenant is back. That represented God. But let me read to you what happened. And this is uh, verse 19 of chapter, of, of chapter 6. Then he, being God, struck the men of Beth Shema because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shema said, Who's able to stand before this holy God? Who is able to stand? And that's, that's my question to you, and that's what we're going to be discussing these next two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to get the answer out of chapter 7, but then we have to talk about who these people are that are being described in chapter 7. But today, I want to give you a foundation for our study of next week. So we're going we're gonna to go back into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at, we're going to look at kind of everything, in a way. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to look at creation story, in a way. We know in the beginning God created all things. Chapter 2 says that God stooped down and formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Then he took man and he put him in the garden. And he created this garden. He says, I want man to, to tend to it, to take care of it. But then he said this to man. And this is verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It seems like he didn't just say, you, you, you're going to die. No, you're going to surely die. I've heard different commentaries on this. Well, did um, Adam really understand what death was like? He had never experienced it. Maybe he didn't quite comprehend all these things. But I have a feeling that he was aware what God meant. And so we fast forward to chapter 3. We see the serpent talking to Eve. We see Eve taking the fruit. We see Eve handing the fruit to the husband. And sin begin. Then we see God searching after his people. Okay? We see God searching after his people. And then he talks to them. And he gives them a promise. The serpent said that you would not 
surely die. Did Adam surely die? Why did he live another 900 years? Did he, did he, was the serpent right? You're not going to surely die. You're just going to die. Well, what was that all about? What, what happened? Why wasn't Adam, when he ate the fruit, why didn't they just fall dead? Because that's what, that's what God said. You're going to surely die. Well, we do know this. From the foundation of the earth, that God the Father and the Son made provisions for man. And that's why he did not surely die that minute. There was already provision. Jesus had already made provisions to step in his place. We need to spend some time, and maybe just 30 seconds, on this concept of surely die. Because God was not joking when he said that. God, you know, he, he made this law. He made this, this, this was a law. He said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. What's the wages of sin? Death. So does that apply to us too? So if we, if we sin, we die. Automatic. Automatic. So God then gives them a promise. In verse 15, chapter 3, he talks about, like a redeemer, that someone's going to come in, he's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and his heel will be um, damaged. Then we jump to chapter 4 of Genesis, and we see these two sons of Adam, and they're sacrificing to God. That's kind of unusual here. It, there's, no, there's no discussion on why they're doing it yet. But they're, they're sacrificing to God. And, and Abel, he has the lamb. And, and Cain, he has the fruit. And it says that the sacrifice that Abel gave was accepted. But the sacrifice that Cain gave was not accepted. So there were principles somewhere discussed with the parents and with these boys. And the principle is this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I know you've heard that a thousand times. But the significance of it, it's, it's absolutely true. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You know, I, when I was in college, you know how college students sit back and try to philosophize. And we were, we were saying, did Jesus really have to die? Did, why couldn't he, why, he could have devised something else. He just wanted to die. That was our conclusion. But you know what? That's not true. God made this rule. This was the law of heaven that... Without the remission, for remission of sin, there was, uh, without without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So what happened when Cain brought his fruit? 
He was really proud of his fruit. I'm sure he was. He was a gardener. He probably brought the very best. Nothing. Why? There's no blood. That kind of sounds icky. No blood. So what was the purpose then of God instituting this this ceremony of bloodletting? Did he get joy from having his people butcher all these animals? We need some more information. So let's go to let's go to the sanctuary. Let's go let's turn to to Exodus. Exodus 25, verse 8. And it's here that God talks to Moses. And God says, God says to Moses, Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with my people. And build it after the pattern. Okay? So Moses does that. He builds this sanctuary, and uh, he builds it exactly like God had told him to build it. So I don't. I was hoping to have a screen, but I don't. So you've seen enough of these uh, examples. Three segments: the open court, the holy place, and the most holy place. In the court was the altar of burnt offerings, the levier. In the, holy, in the holy place was the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the ark of incense. And in the most holy place was the ark of the covenant where the very presence of God dwelt. All right? So, how does this work? All right? So, the sinner then comes in to the entrance of the sanctuary and he has his lamb because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness and he confesses his sin over the head of the lamb and then he takes the life of the lamb the priest collects the blood he sprinkles some of that on the altar burnt offerings and then he takes it into the holy, the holy place and he sprinkles that blood before the veil. He also sprinkles it on the horns of the altar of incense. When the sinner, and I'm leaving a lot out because I know I'm running out of time. When the sinner then confesses his sin over the lamb, he's justified with God. Does that make sense? When the sinner confesses his sin and his, chin, his sin is transferred to the substitute, they collect the blood. And leave, Leviticus, I believe, 11 says the blood represents the life. He is justified before God. And in our terms, that is the, the act of justification. Well, do we have an example of that? The sin on the cross. The thief on the cross, when he confessed to Jesus, when he confessed that um, 
his sins to Jesus, God said, you will be with me in paradise. He was justified. But there's more to this. In the holy place, there's these three articles of furniture. There's the lamp, demonstrating the light, uh, Jesus being the light of the world. There's a table of showbread, Jesus being the bread of life. And then there's the altar of incense, mingling the, the prayers of the saints and, and the blood as it filters over into the holy place. Now, now, what is the purpose of this? There's a reason why I'm spending a lot of time with this. And this is the reason. The whole purpose of the sanctuary was to take man in his fallen state and reinstate him to a state where he could be in the presence of God. Do you understand? When man sinned, God was talking to Adam face to face. But by the time Moses came along, Moses said, show me your face. Show me your face. He said, you can't look on my face and live. And if you read Daniel 7, you see Jesus, uh, God the Father described, and it's a fiery, just fiery flames and blah, blah, blah. And, and in essence, we cannot stand in his presence without being destroyed in the state that we're in right now. So, yes, the first part of the sanctuary then justifies us. When you confess your sins, God forgives your sins. But then if you, if you die, okay, that's it. But if you live like we're living, then every day you're re-exposing yourself to sinful things. And so the Holy Spirit then, God sends his Holy Spirit to us to transform us, to make us into his character. This is the lampstand. God gives us his word to change us. As the more we study his word, the more we are changed, truly by beholding. It's, it's true. Trust me, if you're watching a lot of media, you're watching a lot of stuff on television today, by beholding, we are changed. And insidiously or not, we are. And then there's the, the most holy place where God's presence dwell. Again, the object is to take us who are sinful and get us so that we can dwell in the presence of God. And in Revelation 21, 22, 21 chapter, in chapter 22, it talks about us being face-to-face -face with God. All right? I'm going to have to move on. There's a lot more I want to talk about, but I'm, I'm running out of time. So now I want to take you, there is something I need to add. Now I want to take you to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, a statue is, is, is given. A man has a dream, the king has a dream, there's a statue. Uh, the, it's uh, the head of gold, the chest of silver, the waist of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of uh, iron and clay. 
chapter then seven then chapter seven takes the same nations but gives you a different story the head that was was solid gold is now envisioned as a lion with four wings the chest of silver is now envisioned as a bear with three ribs in its mouth lift up on one side when we look at this the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation we think of symbolism so let's look at let's look at chapter 7 of Daniel we're gonna we're gonna go right to this the part that I need you to understand before we get into Revelation the first four beasts represented the four nations we've heard that a thousand times it's the last beast that we're gonna spend time with and I want to put this caveat in this not about a religion uh, this is about a system of history that went astray so let's read this uh, verse 7 <clears throat> and after this I saw a night vision behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrible exceedingly strong it had huge iron teeth it was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet it was different from all the beasts that was before it and ten horns and it had ten horns and I was considering the horns and there was another horn a little one coming up among them from whom three of the first horns were plucked out of the root and there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words okay the way Daniel started off was in chapter 2 it just gave you a history of the nations then in chapter 7 it gave you more information each of the these images really does represent something the bear that stood on uh, one side stood higher than the other represented how the Medes and the Persians one side was stronger than the other the three ribs that were in there in the mouth of the bear were three nations that the Medo Persians had conquered when we get down to the beast and this is where I need to focus on we see a, a, a beast that cannot be described with iron teeth it's very strong and it has ten horns then after the ten horns one of the horns uh, another horn comes up and pulls up three horns and that horn has eyes like a man and he speak pompous words now Daniel then asked for an explanation he says I, I you know and so the angel comes and he explains the first four three beast but he says you know I, I'm really concerned about that fourth beast what about that fourth beast? we find this in the in uh, verses 19 he says I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast was different from the, the others exceedingly dreadful had ten horns on his head and one horn that came up and the other fell 
So the angel then, then explains to him the fourth beast. And this is the fourth beast. And we're in ver- I'm in verse 23. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other nations, shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them, shall be different from the, the first one. He shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, the question has been, maybe not in our setting, but in our evangelical world, who is this? There's this antithesis that... uh, they claim this was. He was actually a king of the Grecian Empire, close to when the Romans were starting to take over. He persecuted the Jews for three and a half years, but he was never great. He didn't conquer anything. He didn't, um, he didn't do much of anything. The way we have to look at this is that the Bible is consistent. We look at chapter 2, And we look at the Iron Legs, and that was the time of Rome, correct? We look at uh, chapter 7, and that was the beast with the ten horns. That was that same period of time. The same period of time that the little horn came up. The little horn came up later after the ten horns. And this, this, this little horn did several things. It spoke pompous words. It persecuted the saints of the high. And it's intended to change times and laws. When we say that it intended to change times and laws, what are we referencing? The Ten Commandments. When we say that it persecuted the saints, it said that they killed thousands of Christians. The saints were given over to his hand for a certain period of time, time, times, and half a time. We determined that to be 1260 days, and prophetic days are a year, so 1260 years. So this, this image then, this image would, would be dominant for 1260 years. Now, I know you're saying, where am I going with all this? And I'll get you there. Because we go to chapter 8, and Daniel has another vision. And this time, he has the vision during the reign of, of Babylon, but Babylon isn't included in the dream. He has his dream of a ram, whose one, ang- one horn is bigger than the other. And running to and fro, no, nothing can stand before it. Then a goat with one big horn comes not touching the the ground, and smites that ram and brings it down. So after the the, the goat represented the the Greece empire, and the one horn represented Alexander the Great, once he died, he died very young, four of his kings took over. 
And they fought and they, and they divided the land accordingly. And when you look at chapter 8, it initially verse 7 talks about, I say verse 8 talks about the goat that grew very great. And when he became strong, the large, large horn was broken. And place with four notable ones came up from the four winds of the heaven. But then you look at verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came a, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it's assumed that that little horn grew out of one of the horns that was in, that was in Greece. But that one horn represented all of Rome. And it's important for us to understand, we look at what this horn does, and I'm going to read this. It says, It grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. I got to get to the point. The daily sacrifices was cast down. The prince of the host was trampled underfoot. I think that's how it read. The only the only power that could be represented here is the Roman Catholic Church. All the others fall off the wayside. The timing doesn't fit. And then we get to verse 14. Actually, 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one speaking. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, I said all that to get to that one verse, the 2,300-day prophecy. You go into chapter 9, it talks about the 70-week prophecy, the time when Jesus was to come. Uh, it tells you when that prophecy started, that being the 2,300 days as well as the 70-week prophecy. But the reason why I wanted to go through this information, from the beginning, the devil's plan has been to take people's vision from the fact that Jesus is our only sacrifice to something else. And he started right away. You know, we talked about Cain. I mean, why would he bring fruit? Why would he bring fruit? Because the devil wanted the attention directed away from Jesus. It says that for 1260 years, the sanctuary was trampled. We, we know that under the Roman Empire, the, 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 the temple that we knew it was destroyed, AD 70, I believe. We know that Jesus was crucified during that time period. After the temple was destroyed, 
then this the literal sanctuary as on this earth didn't exist. There was no more sanctuary. There was no more sacrifice. You say, well, Jesus had already come. There was no purpose. But there was a sanctuary. And I, I'm running out of time. Because that sanctuary is in heaven. And the time periods, these 2300 days, are important for us when we get into Revelation to be able to connect the dots. How does all this fit? Where does William Miller come into all this? What about the falling of the stars and the massive earthquake, the Lesbian earthquake? What about, there's, there's all these things that we know as Adventists, but we don't know how to put them together. And the book of Revelation puts it together. And so, the whole purpose now of me presenting the, the sanctuary was for you to understand that the, the, that the devil's plan has been to take the emphasis off Jesus and put it on everything else. I mean, people are praying to saints, praying to Mary, praying to everybody because for whatever reason, Jesus can't be prayed to. He's a harsh God. The image of God is on trial today. Is on trial. And yet, through the sanctuary, he proved, he proved his love for us. Because Jesus represents every object of the sanctuary. From the, from the blood, from the lamb, to all the fixtures inside, and Jesus is our only way to the Savior, to the, to the Father, excuse me. He's our only avenue to God the Father. So this is what I want to accomplish next week. Because I know it's 10 after 12. I want to go through the, the first six chapters of Revelation in 15 minutes. Now it took me a year to do that. But you're smart. I want to go to the first six chapters until we get to the sixth seal. Because the sixth seal then asked a question that we all are asking now. Who's going to be able to stand before this holy God? Will you be able to stand? It, it's chapter 7 gives you that information. And if you haven't studied it, I think now is the time. So next week, we're going to cover the first part of Revelation. We'll cover that sixth seal. And, and trust me, it won't be rushed like this. I'm sorry. But the whole purpose now is for us to know who's going to be able to stand. How are we going to be able to stand? What do we need to stand? Let's bar his for prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. I was probably overambitious to think I was going to cover all this. And the detail that it needs. Truly, people have spent a year in a sanctuary. They spent a year studying the book of Daniel. We don't have a year. 
I really believe, Lord, that you're coming as soon. And I believe that we've been putting this off for too long, and that's why you're impressing us to study this. We want to know how can we stand. We believe that we can stand in you. But you have a plan. And you describe this people who's going to stand at the end. So, Heavenly Father, we're asking that you'll give us that wisdom, give us that knowledge. Thank you for what we've heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.